Welcome back to the Sensible Medicine Podcast. Today is Sunday, December 17th, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. John Mandrola. John, it's great to see you. Good to see you too. Good to be back. It's the second time we're starting this show because somebody, myself, forgot to hit the record button on my microphone. All right, let me tell the listeners what they have in store for them. We're going to talk about a new postpartum depression drug that, uh, with a medical student named Dave Alelli, I've written an article in JAMA about. We're going to talk about Orbita 1, Orbita 2, stenting, stable angina, chest pain, John Mandrola's favorite talk of the town from, what, the European conference. And we're going to talk about physics versus medicine and the, and the conflict between the two. John, it's great to see you. Those are the talking points. Anything new in your world before we get into that? Well, you know, there's quite a time in cardiology. Um, uh, we're reviewing the top 10, top 10 cardiology stories of the year, and there's some good ones. And we, we, I think the Orbita 2 is, is, is absolutely one of the highlights, so we'll talk about that. Good. Let's get into Orbita 2. All right, let me start you off with this JAMA paper. So, you know, as you know, John, from time to time, I get somebody who comes and visits me. A few years ago, I had Timothy Olivier, Hemong Fellow from Switzerland. This year, we were lucky. We got Dave Alelli, his fourth-year medical student in Mount Sinai. And he came to me, and he told me that, did I know there was a new drug that was approved for postpartum depression? The name of the drug is Zoranolone. Zoranolone is a pill, he told me, and it's actually a GABA modulator. It's a lot like, it's a lot like barbiturates and benzodiazepines. And you give it to women with postpartum depression, and supposedly it makes them feel better. And then he said, but he's pretty concerned that there are a lot of problems with the study. And he started to take a deep dive, and he found some really, really big problems with this study, and that led us to write this essay that appears in JAMA, Concern About the FDA Approval of the Drug. So I guess I'll just run you through the problems unless you want to jump in there. Jump in. Yeah, yeah. Well, where's the, uh, where's the, I, I, I see your p- uh, piece in JAMA, but where's the actual regulatory trial published or is it published? Well, we went mostly off the drug labels. So I okay. think, yeah, the drug label has the best set of data, section 14 of the drug label. And let me check if we actually have them published. Could it be this one? No, in package JAMA? insult. Yeah, there's one, a randomized control trial in JAMA Psychiatry. Okay. <clears throat> and then there's a, there's two in JAMA, there's an American Journal of Psychiatry, that's where they've been published. Okay. So you wanna hear about the- uh... Yeah, tell us, I mean, I mean, this is pretty, pretty crazy, uh, pretty crazy stuff. I mean, uh, I didn't know about this. I just got an email from JAMA. There you are writing about postpartum depression. Yes. A, a, a subject, a subject that obviously I'm the expert in, John, as you would, well, as, <laughs> as you well know, as you well know. Um, so here's what, um, here's what it turns out. So Zoranolone, it's a neuroactive steroid. It's a positive modulator of GABA receptors. So GABA receptors are, you know, important in the brain, and that's the same receptor that benzodiazepines and barbiturates act on. And there was previously a drug approved in postpartum depression uh, called Brexanolone, but that's IV. This is oral. So that's the nice thing. It's an oral drug. Okay. Okay. The mechanism of action and its side effect profile have something to do with each other. The side effect profile is somnolence, dizziness, and sedation. The black box warning says you should not drive a motor vehicle or engage in hazardous behavior within 12 hours of taking the medication. And it may also have dose-dependent misuse potential like alprazolam or Xanax. So human participants have been shown to exhibit symptoms of withdrawal after stopping. And the package leaflet says, quote, 
adverse reactions reported upon discontinuation among healthy subjects who received 50 milligrams included insomnia, palpitations, decreased appetite, nightmares, nausea, hy- hyperhidrosis, and paranoia. These indicate a physical dependence a potential for physical dependence with Zoranolone. In other words, it sounds pretty addictive, John. It sounds pretty addictive to me. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, kind of scary for young women. But I mean, I guess we have to balance that against the against the problem it's, it's treating. Correct, which is postpartum depression, which can be life-threatening because it can lead to suicide. So you're absolutely right about that. One more problem with this drug is that you have to abstain from breastfeeding because it can cross into the breast milk and then the baby can be basically getting this GABAergic drug. The basic the baby can basically be, be into, in, in, intoxicated from it. So they write in the package leaflet, oral administration of zoranolone to rats during pregnancy and lactation resulted in developmental toxicity in the offspring, including perinatal mortality at maternal doses similar to the ones given in humans. So that's what they say. So it's got some serious side effects, but now let's get into the data. Um, two randomized controlled trials, Robin and Skylark, they have slightly different Hamilton depression scores to get in. One is 26, one is 28. Um, both of those, I think, are pretty severe. Like these are very severely depressed women postpartum, and they're randomized to this drug or placebo. And the primary endpoint is a change in the Hamilton depression score um, at day 15, and it improves 13 points in placebo and then 17 points in the Zoranolone group in one trial. And, uh, and a similar result was shown in the other study, Skylark, at day 15. So we have three big problems with this study. Like, it does look like it works better than placebo. You want to stop there? Let's talk about yeah. that. Yeah, oh, well, the question I have, you know, this is where <laughs> neither of us are content experts. You know, I mean, so it looks like that's a statistically significant change, but is it is it clinically important? And, you know, how, what have you found out about that? And, and uh, I mean, don't you think that's the important question? Yeah. And I actually think that's one of the three points I'll give you. That's the third point. Okay. That's it's. Okay. I'll come, we'll come to that. Yeah. So... The first point, okay, the first point is placebo control, John, is absolutely inappropriate and crazy. Okay, we looked through every guidelines. We talked to experts in this space. There is nobody who would take a postpartum depression woman and not give them the standard of care. And the standard of care, John, is not placebo. The standard of care is at least SSRI and likely SSRI and cognitive behavioral therapy right away. I mean, postpartum depression, this is recommended by all the professional organizations. This is something that everyone would do. You wouldn't just have a woman who's depressed postpartum and put them on sugar pill. You would be giving them SSRI. You would be giving them counseling. This is something that, you know, the control arm, I think, is being harmed here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've talked about this a lot, the problems with comparator arms. You've got to use standard of care. Only 20% and 15% of women in the two trials, Robin and Skylark, were on an SSRI. And I think, really, I think this is a big egregious part of the study. So I guess I can leave it there for now. Number two, these drugs are assessed in people with very severe Hamilton depression of 28. You know, this is like the most severe depressed state. Um, The approval is for anybody with postpartum depression. So once again, this is a classic thing in medicine where we see that the drug that's established efficacy in a severe disease state is being extrapolated to less severe disease states. Like, for instance, ICDs, you know, they, for people with low ejection fraction, high ejection fraction, how far can you extrapolate an ICD? How far can you extrapolate data from severely depressed women to people with mildly depressed postpartum depression? Yeah, so <clears throat> right off the bat, you got problems with a comparator group, and now you've got 
um, external validity issues in terms of, you know, we always randomize the best patients in trials, and then we then we sort of extrapolate that to this broader group of patients that may or may not benefit. It's a huge problem. Huge problem. Okay, so the third point about effect sizes. So, I mean, I'm willing to concede that a four-point reduction in Hamilton depression is meaningful, and I think most people feel it is, but let me put it to you this way. The placebo effect is actually the biggest effect of these studies. In fact, 75% of the effect occurred in both arms of the studies was the placebo effect. Only an additional 25% was the drug effect. Patients with postpartum depression tended to get better regardless of treatment. The authors suggest this could be due to the high number of study visits. In other words, if they're getting better because they feel better because they're coming back to talk to the doctor about the study, imagine how much better they would be if they actually had some therapy, okay? I mean, what are you telling me? You're telling me these are women who need to talk to somebody. They need to feel emotional connection, okay? That's what the authors are claiming. The other point is to enter the study, you had to have Hamilton depression of 26 or greater. But, you know, this creates the regression to the mean phenomenon because you can only get in on the day you have the worst depression and that's not your average score in the weeks prior. And so it will regress towards a lower level with time. You know, this is similar to the sort of the, some of the renal artery denervation studies. You only get in on the day of your highest blood pressure reading. So, of course, you're going to regress to your true blood pressure. You want to talk about that, John? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's all part of it's it's all part of these placebo controlled trials. I mean, uh, I'm not sure there's an I'm not sure there's an, an easy way around regression to the mean other than it comes down to the onus is on the people who are using this trial, like clinical appraisers, like us and consumers that, you know, we have to consider that. And, and I think, you know, if you have a, if you have a placebo effect of minus 13 or whatever it is, and then you have a drug effect of minus 17. Yes. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's actually, it's actually nice that we we are able to quantify the actual you know placebo resistant effects so to speak i mean in many of my field afib ablation for instance we don't have a uh we don't have an idea of what the the placebo resistant effect is we we just have the effect and so i mean good on them for at least having having a placebo we have intervention trials in cardiology for instance the tricuspid valve triluminate trial we have one group gets the uh, intervention. One group gets tablets and gets no intervention and everybody knows. And so that's a huge problem. Same with AF ablation. But here, at least, you you know what the placebo effect is. But it sounds like there's a significant um, just placebo or, or effect from care, uh, any care. Yeah, or, or time or any care regression to the mean. It's hard to know. Um, and the last well, point, Oh, wait, hold on. That's another thing. That's another thing. Okay, we should we should just tease that out, right? Because there's a difference between placebo effect and regression to the mean, where they yes. they often get lumped in. And maybe you 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 probably can explain that better than anybody. <laughs> I guess what I would say the difference between those two is that a placebo effect is an effect that the psychological desire to get better will exert beyond the real baseline. And regression to mean, I think, is merely an artifact of how you select people where the effect that you see is merely just returning to the real baseline from an aberrantly elevated value that allowed you to enroll in the study. So I think that's the distinction I would draw, that one is a psychological thing and one is a, just a, a law of numbers, is a law of statistics. But isn't it true that, and I'm asking here, isn't it true that having a proper control, uh, like a placebo control, uh, it takes care of both, right? Because you can you can kind of control for 
regression to mean if you have a, a proper placebo or sham control or whatever. Okay, that's a great point. So I think placebo control does a very good job at taking care of placebo effect. If it's a if it's a placebo that convinces you. So for instance, like Orbital One, I think is convincing, you know, and we'll talk about. And then I think, um, you know, like uh, if you if you have an SSRI for sugar pill, maybe they can tell the difference because of metallic taste. But if the sugar pill has a little bit of metal on it, so it's an active placebo, that's probably a better placebo, for instance. But regression to mean, I think the way to solve that is you say, instead of taking women with a one-time Hamilton depression above 26, you say in the last month, your average okay. Hamilton depression has to be 26. Then I think you'd, you'd select people for sort of more stable, stably depressed, you know, rather than the one day they have the worst value. Or similarly, you have to have two echocardiograms where your EF is below 30% rather than just one echocardiogram where EF is below 30% or something like that. Like more measurements would help with the regression to mean effect. Okay, cool. Okay, and then the last the point. The third problem. Well, yeah, the, 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 the final point I would say is that the same drug is given in major depressive disorder and it was like a negative study. It doesn't work. Which reminds me of Entresto, where it only works. <laughs> it only works in paradigm and otherwise it don't work. It don't work. You know, it don't work post-MI. don't work here. don't work there. Okay, so putting it all together, I mean, if I can speak but more. But wait, 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 yeah, hold on. on. I, that's an important point, yes. right? Because, yeah. because. There, there's drug classes like you. You point out the secubitril valsartan thing, um, but but also you know you have SGLT2 inhibitors which have been shown effective in multiple trials in multiple different situations. So you feel more confident. Statin drugs, uh, again in in high risk, low risk, multiple studies, always this consistent and almost always this consistent 20-25% reduction in events. And so, uh, ACE inhibitors and 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 you you know you have. You have studies where you feel more confident if the drug class has been shown effective in other trials and other things. And here you have a here you have a specific drug that doesn't have an effect in regular depression. So then then it's it's it just seems it just seems more fragile uh, interpretation to think that it would have an effect in one kind of depression, but doesn't have an effect in other kinds. I mean, it's not- Yeah, let's, let, let's just talk about that for a second. I mean, we, we, we always tell people to be Bayesians, but doctors never do what you say, which is like, you know, all of the SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, you know, empagliflozin, dipagliflozin, you know, all these inhibitors, they all work the same in all the studies, right? You know, they have very comparable effect sizes and they work both in reduced ejection fraction and in post-MI, et cetera. What am I to think about- um, Am I correct about that? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, let's say heart failure, diabetes. Yeah. Sorry, heart failure, diabetes. Uh, not uh, not CKD. Yeah. I mean, all of these similarly cardiometabolically sick patients. It seems to have a similar effect size across across the board. Maybe a little less in half half than in than in heart failure with reduced, but 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 trending in the same direction. But multiple studies. Uh, multiple studies. Whereas uh, there's only conditions. There's only one neprilysin inhibitor. And in correct. oncology, in oncology, sometimes we have trials where nivolumab, pembrolizumab, betezolizumab, dervalumab, they all work. I believe that. But then there's studies where dervalumab and atezolizumab work, okay, in, in small cell, but nivolumab and pembro don't work. What am I to think? Do these, do this Coke, is Coke suddenly work and Pepsi doesn't work all of a sudden? Or right. might, might the whole literature be a bunch of shit, much of noise, you know? So I do think we don't do a good job of, of looking at the portfolio of studies and evaluating drugs in context of the portfolio. And that, that's where your that's where the whole Bayesian uh, priors. I mean, you base your priors, you base your priors on, on, you know, what what they've done in other things and what 
I mean, you can you can have an empirical basis to your priors, or at least a quasi-empirical basis. But with when when you have sacubitril valsartan, where it only works in one study in one particular condition, now I think that makes your it should make your priors pretty pretty pessimistic. Um, same thing with this drug, with this drug here, which is, you know, something that we we have to do as people interpret clinical trials. Absolutely. Okay, so putting it all together, I mean, this is just like, how is this any different than giving depressed women Xanax? I mean, it's just a, it's just like you make them feel drunk and, you know, like give them a GABAergic, they're somnolent. I mean, a lot of people would probably feel better if you took a few Xanax, you know, like, I mean, for any, you know, I mean, doesn't mean it's good for you. It doesn't mean it's wise. You do that in lieu of SSRIs, in lieu of psychiatric therapy. They're saying, oh, everyone's getting better because they're, you know, they have the comfort of talking to the doctor. Well, okay, well then why don't you, why didn't you provide some therapy to these women? And so to me, and the drug's going to cost $15,000, by the way, of course. Well, that's another thing, right? So that's a, that's the fourth point. Yeah. That's huge. Huge. You know, how our, like that they're just gouging the gouging pregnant postpartum women um you know with this drug so i think this is just a disaster you want to speak about you want to speak about the fda and regulatory process and and how something like this passes regulatory muster i mean it it seems i mean i mean there's there's two schools of can two schools of thought right one one school of thought is just like approve everything with a low bar and 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 let the market decide and another one uh, I, I'm sort of more of like we we should have a little bit higher bar for some of these things that get on the market. I, and I guess the cost of that is that you might not approve some things that are beneficial. I mean, honestly, I, I don't know what we're doing with the FDA anymore. Um, because, I mean, you have a choice. Like if you I mean, where do we even get started? <laughs> um, the cancer drugs is a disaster. They approve. They prove so many drugs based on nothing, and then these drugs are being withdrawn left, right, and center. We've done so many papers on the withdrawal of these drugs. Sometimes they don't withdraw them. doesn't mean you have any evidence. And I would even say, you know, you know how I feel about the fall booster. That's the same problem. You approve a fall booster with no data, and then you tell me to give it to a six-month-old baby, and you think, I, and you think I'm the crazy one? You're the crazy. Are you crazy? You got to have some data before you start administering this, and nobody else is doing it. Denmark's not doing it. Sweden's not doing it. Cancer drugs is the same problem. You're approving them based on these surrogates that we know don't correlate. This drug is a problem. I don't know. Who does the FDA serve? Do they only serve the companies, or do they actually serve the American people? They have to decide. I like your idea. I mean, I, I think you, you've said it multiple times in the pandemic where – I mean, we these these companies, especially like Pfizer, they have tons of money. And if if the expectation was that they need to run these trials, then you run the trials. And in in the cardiovascular space, uh, I mean, some of the drug trial, some of the drug studies have been very strong. SGLT two inhibitors, the the um, uh, uh, you know, I mean, even Secubitril valsartan is. I mean, they've not been great studies, but at least they've they forced them to do the studies and and we have data but it just seems it just seems like um i guess we should force companies to do that now i guess the the counter to that is that some of these smaller companies that don't have the money to fund trials we might not get the societal benefit of a of a of a great drug that that doesn't have a lot of support but I don't know. Um, they always uh, say that, but usually these small companies just come up with shitty drugs anyway. I mean, it's like few and far between the small companies got a really good drug. That, and if they do have a good drug, the large company smells and they buy it off them, you know, but it's in my experience. Um, let's talk about Orbita. 
All right. All right. Okay. So go ahead. Let me do the history and orbit a one. You do orbit a two. Okay. My view of the history. I think angina has existed for you know hundreds of for hundreds of years, obviously thousands of years, and uh, in the 1940s, people who had angina, which means you know you feel chest pain when you shovel snow or go upstairs, reproducible chronic stable angina, they thought that they would benefit from the ligation of the internal mammary artery, and that was popular. It was done by thoracic surgeons. They tied off that artery. Now we know that makes no sense because that artery has nothing to do with angina, and back then some surgeons doubted it, and so two randomized trials were done. One by Cobb, I think one by Beecher. You ligate the internal mammary artery or you sham ligate it. And both groups had similar improvements in symptoms. So it really kind of debunked this idea. And it also showed that angina was susceptible to placebo response. Fast forward, in the early 2000s, people who did a lot of stenting chronic stable angina, we thought it improved mortality, reduced MIs. We ran the Courage study. Courage, a 3,000-person randomized trial show, no reduction in MI, no improvement in longevity. But Courage did show that they felt better. There was a short symptomatic benefit that lasted eight, you know, about 36 months, dissipated. Yep. At most. Stent, at most, stenting versus medical management. But people like Sifu and myself and you, we were skeptical that maybe it's a placebo effect from having done the procedure. Then finally, Daryl Francis comes along with Orbita. They take people with uh, chronic stable angina, single vessel disease on antianginals, randomize them to stenting or placebo, and in that study, there was no improvement in modified Bruce protocol treadmill testing, and there was almost no improvement in symptoms, suggesting that it, it, everyone felt better, but it was all a placebo effect in Orbital 1. Okay, now Orbital 2 comes along. Tell us about Orbital 2. Yeah, so, so Orbital 2 was, was um, sort of building on Orbital 1. Orbital 1 uh, had the sort of idea that if you maximally medically manage people with single vessel coronary disease um, and you add the tablets and you really stabilize everybody on that and then you do PCI in addition, <clears throat> then there was no significant improvement. Uh, there was a 16 second or 20 second improvement, but it was not felt to be statistically significant. Uh, and like you said, it was a minimal effect when you take PCI and you add it to maximum medical treatment. And that was what the guidelines say. The guidelines say when we have somebody with an 80% LAD, we're supposed to give them tablets, uh, get them stabilized, and if they, if they don't do well, then offer them PCI. But what, And what happens in the real world is that people don't want to take three tablets and they're scared of their LAD, so they, so they, they get PCI. But so Orbita 2 had the idea that it has to be an effect of opening that artery and preserving and uh, restoring blood flow to that muscle. And so what they did is they took more patients, 300 patients instead of 200 patients, and they could have patients with more severe disease. And they did a couple of things to make sure that these were really important lesions. They did, you know, an or, uh, invasive angiography and did all these little bit, little bit higher bar to make sure that these were hemodynamically significant lesions. And then two weeks before the study, they stopped all the pills. They they stabilized people, but then they stopped the pills and, and most patients did okay. And then they did PCI with nothing on board. And now without uh without the without tablets, it's just PCI alone, they showed that there was a uh, placebo resistant effect. And now they changed the endpoint a little bit. I think it's actually a better endpoint where they designed this app and patients would every day put in this app how many how many times they had angina um, and, and the other typical things and all of it was positive and there was a there was a true 
statistically significant um, effect. Now, it wasn't the hugest effect. I think the exercise time was like 45. I can't I can't remember, but it was about equivalent to one drug. But it was a, it was a real effect. And so what their their conclusion was very provocative. Their, their conclusion was that uh, that PCI alone has a antianginal effect. And and what we do now, where we force patients with clinical coronary disease to take tablets first and then do PCI for resistance symptoms, we may be actually be selecting the patients least likely to benefit because that was Orbita 1. So Orbita 2 comes along and says, well, we can do PCI and we can relieve, we can relieve angina. And so now the the provocative thing is that patients could have a choice. So if you come up with the 80% mid-LAD, your doctor can say, and 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 you have angina, your doctor can say, well, we, we can treat this with tablets and we can give it time. And a lot of times this, this regresses and gets better. Or uh, we can do PCI, which which looks to have a, a, a similar effect and relieve your angina that way, knowing full well that none of this is done to make people live longer or reduce MI or any of that, because we already know everybody agrees that outcomes aren't any different. This is true, truly about relieving symptoms. And so that was that was Orbita 2. And so when I when I wrote my little editorial about this, I said that Orbita 2 saved interventional cardiology. And it actually challenges the current guidance to use medicines first. And, and then before I stop, I'll just say one more thing. If it were me and I had a uh, stable coronary lesion, I would not want a metal cage in my coronary artery because that trades, you know, one disease for, for another. It trades atherosclerosis for, you know, uh, a stent disease, and then you have to take uh, antiplatelet drugs. And if you stop antiplatelet drugs, even three years on, you could get into a problem with stent thrombosis and MI. So I would do everything I could to not have a metal cage in my body. But I'll tell you a lot of people like George Bush uh, George W. Bush, uh, he, you know, he said, it's not your LED. I want it fixed. And so that's the provocative part of Orbit of the Two. Okay. That's a great summary. I have a different interpretation a little bit. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. I mean, Orbit of One tests the clinical hypothesis. Does testing exert a benefit beyond optimal medical management? And the answer is no, it does not. Orbit of Two tests Correct. the hypothesis. Does the coronary have something to do with it in an artificial scenario when you force someone to stop their meds? If you force someone to stop their meds, then yes, stenting has a benefit, which all it tells us is scientifically, we were correct it has something to do with coronary, that lesion. It's not strictly a capillary disease. It's not, maybe, you know, we're not totally wrong about the mechanism, but I don't think Orbit 2 changes practice in any way because if you want to justify the claim that people have a choice, I think the study should have been the following. You randomize people to stenting, um, w stenting, and then optimal medical management on the back end, or optimal medical management with stenting as like the the salvage down the road, and then you show me that at six months or one year, the people who got stented first and then the pills on the back end, one that they take fewer pills, and two that they're happier as a result of having done that intervention, you know, or or that they're just as happy. So to me, I mean, to justify the choice, I think the study doesn't show me there's a choice. It just tells me that under the conditions you're not allowed to take anginals, stenting has a benefit. That's a scientific question, but not a clinically relevant question for anybody. What do you think, John? Well, I understand. It is a really good discussion. I understand. But, 
but in reality, a lot of patients, they're not forced to come off their medicines, but they don't take their medicines because a people don't like taking pills, B nitrates can cause headaches, C beta blockers can, can cause fatigue. And so, in, so let me, let's in, come to that point. I have a rebuttal. Okay. For that. Yeah. Uh, go, go ahead. So I, I heard them say that most people don't take their meds in real life. And I say, if that were true, you wouldn't have to make them stop. You could have showed stenting had a benefit over the meds they walked in on. The protocol actually requires them to stop for three weeks, means that they're taking it enough that they worried that it would have an effect, right? They force them to stop against their will, right? So I think the types of people who enroll in this study are not those people. The people who really wouldn't take the pill at all because they don't give a fuck, they also don't give a fuck about your study. They're not going to be in the study, right? These are people who right. do care. They do take pills and you make them stop. So I think that that, I, I'm not persuaded by that argument. What do you think? I think that you're, I think that this is a really important argument. And, and I've heard this argument that, you know, that Rasha Alami and Christopher Rajkumar and Daryl Francis's group in, in London is one of the best groups in London. And uh, patients are dying to get in this study because they could, they're going to be cared for one way or the other uh, by one of the best groups in the UK. And all they have to do is delay their, PCI 12 weeks um, uh, for the study to occur. And so they're randomizing patients that are, uh, again, it, the, the, the age old thing with RCTs, they're randomizing patients that maybe don't translate to the real world. But I'll tell you then I, that, that the thing just clinically, there is a huge placebo effect from, from PCI. I mean, I have patients who, you know, they have AFib and they mistakenly get in a cath lab because of a stress test and they, they have a circ lesion and, you see them in the recovery room and they're like, doc, I already feel better. And of course it wasn't. So there's, there's a placebo effect, but there's also, there, there has got to be an anginal relief factor because I mean, I just can't imagine from being a cyclist or a runner or whatever that you're trying to ride up a hill with a heart rate of 150 and you got an 80% LED and they get rid of that. I, I just have a, I mean, I just, clinically feel that there would be a, a, a benefit to that. So, so I mean, I you, think this, make, go ahead, you this, make good points, but yeah. I think also, also the trial maybe artificially, but they at least characterize the medicine free PCI effect and, and it might be artificial, but that's an external validity thing, not an internal validity thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say to that point of yours, which is that um, uh, this study proves to me that the coronary artery does have something to do with the angina, because otherwise they wouldn't have felt better under placebo control. But what it doesn't prove to me is that any strategy can be reasoned from that, because you're taking people who are really compliant, you force them to stop, and then, okay, those people, it, it's, it's better to do this than not. But what if you took people who like were on the fence, who are like, eh, I don't know which is best. That's the next study. Actually, take people who are like, I'm not sure which is best, they, in one arm, they get stented and they get started on meds. And in the other arm, they get placebo stented and started on meds. And, and, and both groups may need medicine. The irony is that both groups might, you know, this is, doesn't free you from the need for medicine. And once you take 10 milligrams of something, is 15 any different, you know? So we really ask the question formally going forward in six months, are you happier that you got the stent and you take 10 milligrams rather than 15 or, you know, five rather than 10, you know, that kind of thing. That's, that's what I think is the interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's 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 more to there's more to do in this space. But the but the other thing that I I I want the listeners to understand is that I really worry that the results of Orbita two will be 
uh, will be used uh, in this sort of quote shared decision making thing to say, you know, look, uh, we just have this new study that shows you could just have stentin and, and and your engine is going to be better and you don't need to take tablets. And I really worry that this will foster that this will foster even more overuse, although part of me says that there really can't be any more overuse than there already is. But but I do worry that this will be misused um, and mis misinterpreted um, in a clinic just to do more PCI. I totally agree. Now let me give you a, some tough hypotheticals. Okay. What if I what if I was a naturopathic doctor doing vitamin C infusions, and I said, you know, my vitamin C infusion makes pancreas cancer patients live longer, and so we do a randomized control trial of fulfurinox plus or minus vitamin C infusion. Fulfurinox is the standard of care in pancreas cancer. Okay, no survival benefit. Then I'm like, well, that's not fair. Because, you know, you were giving all that full furinox, right? Like that, how am I supposed to show benefit that interfering with my vitamin C? And what if I also said that, you know, not everyone who has pancreas cancer likes to take full furinox, John. Did you know it's very toxic? It has a lot of side effects. People don't like to take it. So in my next randomized study, I'm going to randomize that 500 people, more people, to uh, vitamin C versus placebo. And I'm going to ask them to stop their full furinox when they come in. So I can test whether or not vitamin C is better than placebo. I think a lot of people would say the fuck are you doing? They'd say, you're not allowed to tell them to stop because that's a proven therapy. And now you're asking him to say, okay, so what do you say about that? All right. Well, the problem with that, the problem with that, Vinay, is that Fulfirinox sounds to me like a disease modifying therapy, standard of care, not because it makes people feel better because it may extend survival. Yeah. But we're talking about taking people off medicines that are purely uh, uh, quality of life, uh, uh, symptom control. Nobody's talking about stopping disease modifying okay. drugs. Okay, let me, a new na second analogy. All right, good. Okay. <laughs> I take care of patients with testicle cancer. We give them platinum. Platinum is the most emetogenic treatment, okay? Wait, if what you does that mean? Emetogenic means you makes you puke. Okay. Nothing makes you puke more than platinum. It's like the category five of puke, the highest puke. Because it makes you puke so much, standard practice is before you give platinum, you have to give a prepotent, which is the most potent anti-nausea medicine we have. I come along and I make a, I make a vitamin C and I say, guess what? Vitamin C is going to knock the hell out of your nausea, right? People don't like a prepotent. It's actually very constipating. Actually, all the anti-nauseals are often be constipating. So I'm going to make my new anti-nausea medicine. It's called vitamin C. People, it goes down super smooth. You don't feel any nausea. And then I say, okay, first randomized trial. People with platinum, they're getting a prepotent plus or minus my vitamin C. There's no reduction in nausea. Like the preparatin knocked it all down. I can't show a benefit. Second randomized trial, I say, we're going to ask you not to take the preparatin. It just helps the nausea. You get randomized to vitamin C or placebo. Okay. What would you say about the ethics of that study? People would say, why the hell are you not giving them the preparatin? <laughs> yeah, because it showed a clear, it showed a clear placebo resistant effect, right? Pre I mean, it reduces, uh, uh, it reduces a, uh, uh, an endpoint like vomiting, vomiting. You can put on vomiting on a on a spreadsheet. It's more difficult to put chest pain on a on a spreadsheet. But my understanding I mean, is that antianginals antianginals have reduced chest pain, just as epipedin has it, reduced it, vomiting. It it does. It 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 has in in old old studies. So uh, it's true. It's true. Um, uh, but the way you sold that study uh, is that the anti-nausea medicine was clearly was clearly beneficial um 
But antianginals are clearly so, beneficial because if you don't give them, they feel even uh, shittier. Yes and no. It's oh, not I like see. vomiting. You know, like you can. I went from five vomiting episodes to zero vomiting episodes. Um, you know, and antianginals do have do that. I know where you're going. I don't think. I I really um just as a cardiologist that yes nitrates and and beta blockers can reduce angina but um it's 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 not like you're vomiting drug but but you all all of our arguments are going to the same point that you're interested in you you I think the biggest problem you have is the leap between what the science is what the experiment is and and what the uh, interpretation and how we use it in the clinic. That's exactly right. I think I think my argument would be that Orbita 2 is a study that tells me coronaries have something to do with angina, but it tells me nothing about practice. It's not a practice-changing study. Um, whereas Orbita 1 was a practice-changing study, this is not a practice-changing study. So I guess, yeah, that's what I, that's my argument, yeah. Yeah, I think that I... I, I... I mean, I, I'm, I'm I'm probably in the middle, but I yeah, I, you're in the I middle. Do, you're in the middle. I, I do think that I do think that it, you know, there's there's some artificial characteristics of it to show that there's a true placebo resistant effect to opening opening the artery, and because that was very much in question with with Orbita One, very much in question because of the way the way patients were maximally medically managed, which is the problem with Orbita One is that. The, the 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 criticism is the same as you're criticizing Orbita two. The criticism of Orbita one that it wasn't clinically realistic and it wasn't clinically useful because nobody gets that kind of medicine titration in real life. They get put on one drug or maybe two drugs and then they don't get that kind of close follow up and titration that they would get at Imperial College London. Well, it's a good good discussion. Let's see what listeners yes. think. Write to us about Orbita. I think. Okay. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think there's one thing that we both agree on, which is that all of these trials are not the same as the clinical decisions we face. They're all somewhat imperfect. As you say, Orbita 1, they get more titration than the average Joe. Orbita 2, nobody tells somebody to actually stop. That You know, people, if they're non-compliant, they're going to be non-compliant. You don't have to force them to stop. You know, all these kinds of questions. It would be interesting to actually have some pragmatic studies of how to take care of people in American practice, you know, like very simple NHLBI, you know, like the next 1,000 people, larger studies where we have different treatment strategies. When do we deploy stents? In whom? When do we go with medical management? What are the different ways? Also, we talk about antianginals, but to my knowledge, there are no randomized studies that test the order in which they should be given. Right. This is all like, right. The order in which they should be given, the way they should be titrated. I mean, there's so many ways you can give them. And which ones do people like? I like whoever comes by and drops off lunch. So thank you, Renola Zine, for no, you know what I mean? But who knows which ones you're giving, right? So there's a lot more to be done here. I, I, I agree. And, and I, we, move, we need to move on. But, but yeah. I just say that I used to be in that pragmatic camp too. But the downside of the pragmatic thing is that there, pragmatic trials have a lot more noise and so sometimes the results of a pragmatic trial come out uh, as x y or z and people say well we can't really make conclusions from that because there wasn't that strict control so there's this tension between having an artificial situation in rct and having it more be real life because real life trials are going to be noisier so just so the listeners know that it, it's not super easy it's never easy all right so do you want to do the last one or should we just we got 40 minutes no, of content. It, last part? Yeah. All right, the last part. I was giving some four lectures at WashU St. Louis as visiting professor. 
And at one of the lunches, this guy who's an MD, PhD in physics, he told me this story about gravitational waves. So apparently there's been a question since like the 1800s, like when two black holes collide, do they send waves of gravitation in space? And can those waves moving at the speed of light be detected by other people? And I think there's a lot of mathematics that suggests that they must send gravitational waves. But in physics, they don't just care about the prediction. They want proof that you can detect the gravitational waves. So then the question was, well, how do you detect a gravitational wave from something, you know, a billion miles away, right? Um, from two things colliding far, far away on Earth, you know? And so apparently for the next 100 years, people came up with theory, mathematics, and engineering for how to detect the gravitational waves. And then in 2015, using like two sets of mirrors placed a mile apart, and the mirrors are like atomically planed, so they're super flat, and two sets of mirrors the other way a mile apart, and a laser beam shining back and forth, they showed that the gravitational wave can actually move the mirrors closer together or further apart, and they separated the gravitational wave of two black holes colliding far, far away from all of the things that move the plates a little bit, like the Earth's crust and the traffic and then the atmosphere. They separated all that from the signal of the gravitational wave, and they proved mathematically that we detect the gravitational wave from these two black holes a billion miles away, long time ago, for that, that wave to hit us, Earth. Okay. So what you're saying is the experimental evidence uh, uh, found that the theoretics was correct. It yeah. was consistent. Correct. So they, what's the, well, how does this correlate to medicine? They took thousands of people, hundreds of years, with engineering and math, and they all were committed to the goal of knowledge. Can we find this wave? Can we prove it, true or false? We have millions of people in medicine. We have so much brain power, so much money. We have more money than they do. And we are not committed to the same goal at all. On the pandemic, when they say, oh, do cloth masks work? Oh, we could never know. We could never know, John. We could never run a study of masking. It would be unethical. The result would take too long. And then right now, we have masking in my hospital right now. We could never study that. The fall booster. We can't study the fall booster mammography. We can't randomize women to no mammography. Colonoscopy. How did he even do that study? It's unethical. We can't do any more studies. Impella. We can't do a study of Impella. We can't. We can't. All all these motherfuckers say is we can't, John. All we can't, can't, can't. These physicists, they say we can. We can. That's the take-home lesson. We are the worst. We don't even try. We threw in the towel. We would never find a gravitational wave. We just say we don't give a fuck. Give me my give me my month's paycheck and let's go on. That's what we'd say. <laughs> That's my point. I do like I do like your I do I saw your I saw your substack and I really liked it because it's it's really an upstream issue, right? It's an upstream issue because it's about a culture. It's about a culture of knowing. How do we know what we know? And you know, it's what kills me is is the history of medicine is replete with examples of we thought we knew stuff, but we didn't know the antiarrhythmic story, the hormone replacement story. These 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 were ongoing when I was actually learning to be a doctor. And so I've come into this field uh, doing things that we were proven untrue because. We don't have this culture of, of, we have this culture of certainty rather than uncertainty. And I think you're arguing for equipoise. Like, why, why do we, why don't we just, I, I think equipoise is underrated. I mean, I think it's there when, uh, when we don't think it's there. And we're going to have a study on Impella. 
um, you know, which is the left ventricular assist device. It, 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 we've been using this device for, I don't know, maybe 10 years, maybe, maybe more than five years. Um, and people say we, we have to use it. Otherwise, patients are going to die. But we're going to get a trial. Uh, the uh, Northern Europeans are going to give us that trial. And, and, and if it doesn't work, then holy shit, you know, and then same thing with swan against catheters. We finally got a trial there. It doesn't work or it doesn't work in general. And I, I'm really struck. I totally, I totally like your idea because I, I think we have this cultural problem where we don't, um, we, we, we think we know more than we do and, and we don't, uh, give equipoise enough, uh, emphasis. And I, and I really, I mean, things that are really beneficial, if you randomize them at the first interim look, you can stop the trial and say, it's beneficial, and then and then we can move on to study something else. But but we don't do that. I mean, I've just been on service for the last few weeks, so for me, it's been like everything is like you know. If we're honest, we actually we just don't know. Like you walk on rounds, and they're like, "Oh, hey, doctor, you have to gown and glove before you see that patient." I was like, "Really?" They're like, "Oh, well, the signs on the door." I was like, "Oh, if the signs on the door, that must be the that must be the Lord's truth." But do we actually have any evidence? No. And then I go around, and somebody's like, "Oh, he, she needs plasma exchange." I was like, "Really? Do you know the study that supports plasma exchange? This condition is from like 1960, and you know there's only like 200 people in that study, and it's got all these issues with the study." And I was like, "Since then, it's never been replicated. So you really does she really need plasma exchange?" Oh, we don't know. Or like, or you know, he he definitely can't. Oh, that was the other thing. Um, he definitely can't get this drug because he smokes. Oh, really? Is that an absolute contraindication? Has that been studied? No, nope, no, nope, we don't know. And But we're just happy to not know. Nobody's like, oh, let's build these mirrors a mile apart in 100 years. There's nobody building any mirrors. They're just like, eh, we'll never know. We just keep doing it. <laughs> you know, they're just like, we just keep doing it. And, you know, maybe, you know, we're probably close enough. And, you know, whatever. We got to go. We got to go home. You know, that, that's the attitude. That's what I think is a culture difference. <laughs> But the but the thing of it is is okay take take another take another thing that that came out this year uh, ECMO so there were yeah. two trials with ECMO extracorporeal um, uh, support I mean basically a heart lung machine and you would think how could how could that fail and 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 two trials both wait came and, out and, and it failed so for cardiogenic shock right cardiogenic shock fail uh, hold on I'm gonna pull it up it failed yeah. for cardiogenic shock and it failed for um, uh, the inception trial let me see if I can find it. Um, uh, but it, I know it failed for cardiogenic shock. Uh, let me see. Hang on a second. Um, inception. Uh, oh, yes. Failure of UCS. Oh, the inception trial, Dutch investigators. Uh, this was from failed CPR. So out in the field, CPR is not working. You just put them on heart lung machine and that failed. And then ECLS shock, which was, which was cardiogenic shock. But the point is that this is an invasive life-saving life supporting uh, therapy that we were doing that when studied uh, uh, came up with no benefit. Oh, and that's and, the one I remember where it's like 40% dead in both arms. So like people yeah. always say you can't randomize because it's so lethal, but this proves that even when it's lethal, it can be the same, you know, like you, you can randomize and it can be the same. Right, right. And, uh, but, but the whole physics and, and medicine thing, I, I mean, I think this is one of the main purposes that, uh, that I like in, in our Substack and what we're doing with these podcasts is we're just, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not nihilists. We're just saying that we should study more things than we study. You know, you mentioned the the, the gown and glove thing. Well, what about the like the sepsis protocol? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, what about the heart failure readmission or the heart uh, the readmissions yeah, penalty, program. which which we were doing because it was really good. Uh, it was good intentions, and it looked like it should work. And then when it come out, it actually shows that maybe it's harmful. 
And so rather than implementing these things, we, sh we, we should just randomize patients. And uh, I think, the, isn't it true that the, the UK investigators and during COVID, the, the, uh, I mean, where the steroids came, what was the name yeah, of that? Re recovery. Recovery. recovery trial. I mean, they just, they had a system where we don't know. So we're just going to randomize. And at the end we have this information, but we don't, we don't have that. We talk about trials all the time, but I think we, I think we study a lot less things than we, than we could. Last two thoughts for you. I, um, traveled a lot lately. I've been to Curacao, gave four lectures there, WashU St. Louis. I've been, gosh, Stanford a few weeks ago. So many lectures. A few things that jump out of me. One, I'm walking down the halls in WashU, St. Louis. I got people shouting out at me, you know, hey, thanks for you and Sensible Medicine and the whole crew at Sensible Medicine. Love the podcast. Love what you guys are doing. Totally agree with you. We need more centrism. We need more balance in medicine, some common sense. That's one. Two, I had a young person after my talk on COVID policy come up to me and say, I never once try, even thought twice about what we were being told. And now you kind of blew my mind because I feel like there are a lot of gaps and I actually don't understand it so well. So I think there's a need for this kind of stuff, John. I think people are out there. They're very happy. I, I, I hear very similar feedback as well. And I mean, I have to say kudos to JAMA for publishing your, your, your critical appraisal on the postpartum, postpartum drug. I mean, maybe, maybe you don't typically see that kind of critical appraisal in journals, but, but I mean, we have, to, we have to give them credit for publishing that because that, that's pretty widely read. We have to. And you know, that's the opposite of the mirrors a mile apart. That's like that trial is like, they're like, mm, why don't you just like hang up a bathroom mirror and like get a flashlight and wave it around. And like, if the light bounces there, we'll just say we found a gravitational wave and it's working. You know, that, that's the level of the trials we run in, you know, like, oh, I just wave that flashlight and I'm sure there's a gravitational wave out there somewhere. So let's just approve this drug. That's the equip. That's what we're doing in medicine. All right, John, thank you so much. All right. Ple pleasure awesome. to see you until All next right, time. Good to be back.